0: You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Jennifer Wells from Brown University. Her paper was entitled, The Irish Model, Building Empire in 17th Century Jamaica. On the 15th of November, 1679, the Jamaican Assembly delivered an emotive address to the island's governor and commander-in-chief, Charles Howard, Earl of Carlisle. In it, they recounted the governance and various constitutional models of the colony since its acquisition by England in 1655. Then, the parliamentarians, fresh from victory and exulting in the spoils of war, had governed according to martial law. In 1660, the newly restored Charles II ordered Colonel Edward Doyley to establish a civil government according to the method of His Majesty's most ancient plantations. The new government proved a remarkable success, more so than its military counterpart of the 1650s. It called assemblies and settled the government of the island in such good form that Charles II thought not fit to alter it until the appointment of Carlisle in 1678. It was then the Jamaican colonists argued that the lords of trade undertook a deliberate campaign to smear the settlers' reputations. The lords portrayed his majesty's most loyal and obedient subjects in Jamaica as a people full of animosity, unreasonable, irregular, violent, undutiful, and transgressing both the bounds of duty and loyalty. Such depictions, the settlers argued, grossly misrepresented their fidelity and were better reserved for the Irish. Indeed, it was the Irish model that Carlyle had put into place. We cannot imagine, they retorted, that the Irish model of government was, in principio, ever intended for English men. History knew the Irish model by another name, Poyning's Law. In 1495, Henry VII's chief governor in Ireland, Sir Edward Poynings, had implemented the law in response to a perceived loss of control over Ireland during the upheavals of the Wars of the Roses. The law would allow England to reassert power over its western neighbor by effectively subordinating the Irish parliament to that of England. No parliament could sit in Ireland without the English chief governor of Ireland first submitting all proposed, legislations, proposed legislation and the reasons for it to the English king and his privy council. The king would then review the legislation and justifications. If he deemed the request worthwhile, he would return the legislation and grant an official license to hold a parliament. The chief governor would then call a parliament who would pass the legislation with any amendments made by the king and his council. Even by contemporary standards, the measure was anti-democratic. And over the next three centuries, it became a consistent rallying point for those seeking greater self-determination in Ireland, most especially the Confederate Catholic Association during the 1640s, William Donville during the Restoration, William Molyneux following the Williamite Wars, and Henry Grattan's Patriot Party in the late 18th century. The imposition of appointing law in Jamaica in 1678 marked just one way in which domestic initiatives implemented in the British archipelago informed the growing empire abroad. The explicit recognition by officials in both England and its colonies that the same method in legislative matters must be made use of in Jamaica, as in Ireland, reveals the deliberate, calculated nature that came to define English empire building. John Robert Seeley famously declared that England seemed to have conquered and peopled half the world in a fit of absence of mind. Repeated invocations and in colonial records of words such as experiment, model, method, custom, practice, example, and experience all of which contemporary officials fixed to past colonial endeavors, in particular geographic locations, strongly suggest otherwise. The Englishness of English Empire may well have been its decidedly un-ad hoc nature. Ireland as a laboratory for empire remains a well-accepted scholarly theory. Historians, however, have never tested the veracity of this hypothesis beyond noting impressionistic, often racist, residences. And yet it is in the 17th century Caribbean, deemed by scholars of the Atlantic world as the hub of empire, that the calculated design of English imperialism becomes acutely apparent. And it is in the 17th century Caribbean that the deliberate use of Ireland as a model for empire becomes acutely apparent. Part of this is rooted in the constitutional compositions of early modern states, and by extension, their budding overseas empires. David Armitage has made clear that early modern European empires were structured upon the constitutional establishments of their parent states, while John Eliot has shown that the majority of early modern European states were composite monarchies. Together, these realizations helped to clarify the connections between early modern state formation and early modern empire building. The two processes occurred simultaneous to one another and borrowed from one another. In the English context, 1649 proved a particularly critical moment. Then Oliver Cromwell and the parliamentarian regime executed Charles I and subsequently invaded and conquered Ireland and Scotland. Both countries remained constituent components of the British composite monarchy, or composite state, in theory, but simultaneously were treated as subjugated territories. The ideology, personnel, and policies that guided English expansion in the archipelago mirrored those that guided its aggressive imperial expansion abroad, particularly the Western design and the subsequent conquest of Jamaica, as well as the peopling of Barbados, Bermuda, Virginia, Maryland, and the Carolinas. Today, I want to focus in the remaining time Upon the ideological and constitutional components of this borrowing within the context of Jamaica between 1655 and 1680, 1655 being the date that parliamentarian officials captured Jamaica, and 1680 the date that Charles II ultimately agreed to do away with the Irish model in Jamaica. What becomes clear is not only an English and particularly Cromwellian use of the same ideology and rhetoric to justify conquest in both Ireland and Jamaica, but also how decades later, Crown officials utilized this same rhetoric to justify the imposition of Pointing's law in Jamaica, while English planters on the island tapped into well-established tropes and stereotypes of the Irish to reject the imposition of Pointing's law. Taken together, it suggests intimate, often inextricable parallels between state formation and imperial expansion that force a fundamental rethinking of English empire. Rooted simultaneously in longstanding continental conflict and England's own opportunistic commercial endeavors, the Western design sought to cripple Spain's commercial and colonial interests in the Caribbean. Doing so would provide England with both new territory and valuable lands on which to plant sugar, a commodity increasingly demanded by European taste buds. Cromwell selected Robert Venables and William Penn to lead the military expedition. A third man, Edward Winslow, would join them as a civil commissioner. Their inclusion was, by Cromwell's own admission, purposeful. All three, he wrote, had prior prior colonial expertise. Penn and Venables had, according to Cromwell, acquired this during the parliamentary invasion of Ireland, with Penn leading a series of brutal inland incursions in Cary and Clare, and Venables serving as a civil commissioner. While Winslow's experience derived from having spent much of the 1620s to 40s as a colonial commissioner in New England, having arrived in Plymouth, Massachusetts, aboard the Mayflower in 1620. While Penn and Venables failed in their principal aim of taking Hispaniola, they succeeded in conquering Jamaica. The justifications for the conquest resonated with the rhetoric first deployed by the parliamentarians when they invaded Ireland and later Scotland. The Spaniards had, like the Scots and Irish before them, failed to improve the land. Less than one one one-hundredth of the plantable land was in cultivation when the English made themselves masters of it, Venables would later write. The justification hinged, essentially, upon the Roman legal doctrine of race nullius, which held that unoccupied and underutilized land remained the common property of all humanity until an enterprising people could improve it and thus legitimately claim ownership. Englishmen had invoked the principle since the 1580s in Ireland to legitimize their activities. The parliamentarians had justified the confiscation of estates in Scotland along similar lines, arguing that English ownership ensured that the lands would be managed and improved to the best advantage of the Commonwealth better than ever the Scots have done. Likewise, the sloth and penury of the Spanish planters on Jamaica when the English arrived mirrored Cromwellian descriptions of the Irish and Scots earlier in the decade. The Irish, wrote Thomas Waring in 1651, are of such profound sloth they are merely a kind of reptilia, while the Scots, one parliamentarian pamphleteer declared, were both a poor and crafty people and base and beggarly wild beasts. Other justifications found further parallels. The Spanish in the West Indies possessed nothing of the elegancies of life. They were neither polished by social intercourse nor improved by educations, and they passed their days in a gloomy languor, enfeebled by sloth and depressed by poverty. Education particularly stuck. Because the Spanish planters could not afford to send their children to Europe for education, they lived in a state of progressive degeneracy, a parallel levied against the Old English, who degenerated by intermarrying with and living amongst the native Irish. The parliamentarians sought to correct this degeneracy in Ireland by shipping the sons of Old English subjects to England for schooling to, quote, make them good Protestants. Worse still, the feckless Spaniards have failed to explore Jamaica, leading them to overlook its innumerable economic opportunities. Many valuable commodities, which Jamaica has since produced in so great abundance, were altogether unknown when the English arrived in 1655, while the rest of the inhabitants cultivated no more than were sufficient for their own expenditure. The Spaniards had only three principal exports, hog lards, hides, and cocoa, provisioning the The few ships that arrived in Jamaica with these items constituted the whole of their commerce, a commerce which the savages of Madagascar conduct with equal ability and success. The English presence promised to change all of that, but hinged upon one critical element. In the words of General William Brain, a former commander in Scotland, then stationed in Jamaica, our greatest want will be servants, which if we had one, I think we should be the richest plantation in the Indies. For servants, the regime turned to the archipelago. Jonathan Scott has argued that the most powerful intellectual forces in forming English republicanism also underpinned the process of discovery and colonization in Ireland, America, and elsewhere. One of the strongest concerns, social and economic problems at home. As early as 1584, Richard Hacklett advocated disposing many thousands of idle persons to the new world, where they should be kept from idleness and be made able by their own honest and easy labor to find themselves without subcharging others. Removing the unwanted did not just fuel population increase abroad, it also improved the quality of the domestic population. Hackless was a belief reaffirmed by Thomas Scott in 1620. The West Indian voyages, Scott argued, served for drains to unload England's populous state, which else would overflow its own banks by continuance of peace and make a body fit for rebellion. George Monk tapped into a similar current in 1646 when he encouraged victorious nations in Europe to establish colonies and transport vanquished people from one country to another. In these new colonies, the conquered deportees would learn to value work and obedience and ultimately enjoy such liberties as the people do amongst home. Thus, when in 1652 the overseers of the poor began to deliver vagrant Irish men, women, and children to merchants such as one Mr. Joseph Lawrence for shipment to the West Indies, they acted upon a well-enshrined belief that removing the destitute and idle would in fact just benefit the commonwealth. This ideology even inspired one alderman, Tichborne of Dublin, to propose to the parliament an act concerning the transplanting of poor Irish children out of Ireland into the western plantations in October of 1653. Now, Atlantic scholars have suggested that the imposition of Poynting's law in Jamaica is nothing more than Stuart absolutism writ large on an imperial canvas and point to a lack of sources discussing the imposition of the law in support of their claims. Combing through archives in London, Washington, and even in Kingston, Jamaica, suggests that there is a different way of reading why officials in London made use of the Irish model, and that has to do, in part at least, with the Irish. The influx of Irish servants, along with an increase in the Scottish, Black, and Indian labouring populations, created an increasingly tenuous social situation on the island by the 1660s. Allegations of some 17 plots hatched amongst Irish, Scottish, Black, and Indian servants appear in Jamaican records between 1661 and 1680. In 1676, the island's governor wrote of, quote, a dangerous plot or combination of the Irish and Negroes that if the Irish cannot have their freedom, they intend to cut the throats of our Englishmen. This has been attested by several of the Irish nation. In debating what to do, the assembly invoked memories of the 1641 rebellion, proclaiming we are loath to have our citizens destroyed as these bloody people have done to English Protestants in Ireland. Hearing of the situation in England, Crown officials and the Committee of Trade and Plantations debated what course to take. They were, as ever, short of money and believed that imposing Poynings law in Jamaica would better assist in streamlining revenue collection from its overseas colonies. And yet, alongside this discussion of taxation was one born of a particular social and cultural milieu. Imposing the Irish model in Jamaica would provide for greater security of His Majesty's government and its law. The revolts plotted by Irish and black servants were cited as particular evidence. What better way to control the Irish, wrote one Mr. Atkinson, than to use the Irish model, as has always been done. Others took this criticism one step further and suggested that it was the English planter population who needed to be controlled and refined, not, for once, the Irish. The English on Jamaica refused to labor or to put themselves into any service. They, like the indolent Spanish settlers and the Irish before them, existed in a dissolute, lewd, and slothful kind of life and committed evil practices, such as pilfering, thefts, robberies, and other felonious acts. The governor and council had all been lambasted by late-uttering threatening words and menacing language more fit for an Irishman than an Englishman. By living amongst the Irish, and at such a great distance from England, the Englishmen, they argued, had degenerated. Debates ensued for more than two years across the Atlantic as to the legality of the Irish model in Jamaica. The planters argued it fundamentally infringed on their rights as English subjects, citing Calvin's case. And as English subjects, they reminded both Charles II and the Committee of Trade in 1679, we ought not to be governed as Irish men. Further explanations were given, almost all with references to Ireland, to show just how un-Irish Jamaica and the English planter population really was. The distance between Jamaica and England made this method impracticable. A narrow water does not separate us to you as it does Ireland to England, uh, the planters wrote. Moreover, in the event of a rising, most especially a revolt planted amongst those Irish and blacks, the Irish model would actually stymie attempts to resist rebellion because one of the chief clauses in Pointing's Law that it was going to be implemented in uh, Jamaica prevented the governor from raising a militia without the Crown's consent. Authorities in England retorted that the final power of establishing laws in Jamaica rested with his majesty because Jamaica, like Ireland, is a conquered country. Finally, on the 30th of October, 1680, the Crown relented, sort of, and agreed to repeal Pointing's Law in Jamaica, but it did not wholly do away with the Irish model. Instead, the Committee of Trade, in agreeing to repeal Pointing's Law, ordered Jamaica to enjoy the same method of making laws as is now appointed for Barbados. The planters, officials later wrote, expressed themselves very well satisfied. Well, this decision restored self-representation to the Jamaican Assembly and vested local officials with the right to make their own laws, the plan also required that Jamaica incorporate the laws of Barbados into its government. The laws of Barbados were modeled extensively upon provisions first introduced by the parliamentarians between 1652 and 1656. And perhaps by now you should not be surprised to learn that the provisions from the 1650s, most especially a series of laws dealing with servants, mirrored verbatim and explicitly innovative measures introduced by the Cromwellians in Ireland just several years earlier, including a past system, the creation of special zones or precincts in which the Irish in Ireland and the Irish, Scots, Blacks, and Indians on Barbados were required to live prohibitions on intermarriage with English men and women, and prohibitions on the carrying of arms and ammunition. This other Irish model, based more on policy than constitutional arrangement, became fundamental to not just the expansion of the English empire in the wider Atlantic, but also in the Indian Ocean. Its provisions were codified in 1661, and it became known as the Barbados Discipline, and informed the slave codes of Jamaica, Antigua, and South Carolina. The East India Company would adopt it in 1684 for its outpost at St. Helena and again in 1687 for its factory at Madras, noting we have found that the Bardado's discipline, a method developed for Irish and Negroes, be wholly satisfactory in in ordering servants and slaves elsewhere in the world." The development of the Barbados discipline and its roots in Ireland is a story for another day, but the innovative constitutional and legal developments in the Caribbean during the mid to late 17th century make clear their intimate, explicit connections with domestic archipelagic state building, as does the ideology that fueled them and the personnel who implemented them. Taken together, it forces scholars to take much more seriously Ireland's role as a model for imperial expansion. Equally important, it shows the inherent value in assessing the dual processes of state and imperial formation. Indeed, as much as a model as Ireland provided for empire, the ideologies, personnel, and policies that I've just discussed and briefly alluded to here were implemented in Scotland in equal measure during the 1650s, foreseeing a fundamental reassessment of the origins of English empire and its direct connection to contemporary state building measures implemented much closer to home.